Welcome to Conversations with Leaders. I'm Jake Burns, an enterprise strategist for AWS. Today I'm talking with Joe Foster, the Cloud Computing Program Manager at NASA Goddard Space Flight Center. NASA has gone through a rapid cloud adoption and it was interesting to hear how they did it and overall how Joe is supporting each of his customers. Joe, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, my pleasure. So uh, can you uh, start off by telling us a little bit about yourself and your role at NASA? Sure. Uh, I'm the uh, Cloud Computing Program Manager. Uh, I'm located at Goddard Space Flight Center. So for those that aren't familiar with NASA and uh, the sort of overall org structure, I think a lot of people think of NASA as this, you know, big monolithic, you know, organization and everybody, you know, knows the astronauts and the shuttle program. Um, But in actuality, NASA is quite uh, spread out and quite diverse. Um, I I like to sort of draw the parallel with uh, the Department of Defense or DOD. You know, DOD underneath underneath the hood, they've got the Army, the Navy, the Air Force. They all operate aut- autonomously from one another, uh, but they're all sort of meant to work together as a cohesive unit. So saying NASA is much the same way. So Goddard Space Flight Center, where I work, uh, is, is headquartered in Greenbelt, Maryland. We're predominantly the home of unmanned spaceflight. In NASA terms, you're either a research center or a space flight center. And so we operate uh, the Hubble Space Telescope in addition to another uh, 40 to 50 of the civilian satellites that the, the country has. Uh, on top of that, we have all four of uh, NASA science disciplines, Earth science, planetary science, heliophysics, and astrophysics. So uh, we're actually quite big. Goddard is about 10 to 12,000 people or so spread out over a 150-acre campus. And so uh, my role as the cloud program manager is to help you know streamline and really accelerate the adoption of cloud um, across these various organizations, um, engineering groups, science groups, these flight projects. There's, as you can imagine, a, a wide array of different specialties that people have. And there's been some people wanting to do cloud for quite some time. NASA's done cloud for about you know five or six years, but they've really not had the opportunity to sort of adopt at scale. And so about two years ago, um, my role was created as the first full-time uh, cloud civil servant uh, at at Goddard, and um, and it's really with the overall goal of trying to streamline that adoption process um, for all missions, both at Goddard and across all the agency. Very cool. So um, you've said that uh, understanding the mission pain points at NASA has helped when speaking about leading rapid cloud adoption. Uh, what what's the key to creating a simple, concise vision that appeals to both the heads and hearts of the company? Sure. I started um, at NASA, actually, I just hit my two-year anniversary last week. When I showed up in the CIO organization, there wasn't really a business plan. There wasn't really a case. It was just a simple, like, hey, we want to do cloud. You've got to go figure this out, right? And for me, I, um, I actually had done this prior in my previous agency. Uh, prior to coming to NASA, I was at uh, NGA, the National Geospatial Intelligence Agency. And so... I was unvolunteered or voluntold participant uh, at NGA, and so I learned a lot of lessons of sort of what not to do uh, from my time there as sort of an early adopter of cloud, and it really helped me to sort of uh, get a lot of momentum very quickly at NASA. And so probably my first 90 days on the job, I literally went door to door, you know, almost like a politician, you know, shaking hands and, you know, introducing myself and trying to understand what they were doing. And... You know, as you can imagine, after you meet enough people, you know, some themes started to emerge, which was cloud expertise is really expensive. And, you know, in the early life cycle of a lot of projects, especially a lot of flight projects where you're talking about 
a six to eight year development time, you know, their budget tends to look like a bell curve where in the early research phase, it's, you know, lean startup, very minimal money. And then once we sort of agree on a design is when the bulk of the money comes all the way up to launch of the spacecraft. And then it tailors off, you know, immensely back into the sort of that overall operations and maintenance. And so one of those themes is, is sort of what I now call my cloud SWAT team. You know, we want cloud expertise, but we don't really need a full-time person or multiple full-time people. We, we need some subject matter expertise to get us through some initial design, to maybe get us through some prototyping. And then we're going to go off and figure out how it integrates with the rest of the systems, you know, the ground system, the spacecraft and that kind of stuff. And so because of this sort of stop and start nature of the work, um, you know, having that centralized SWAT team where we could have expertise that goes out into these projects for a short period of time to help get them going and then comes back in, you know, that was one of the key themes. Uh, one of the other themes that I find very interesting, because NASA has this decentralized construct, right? A lot of organizations, commercial industry, and even traditional in government, you know, the CIO organization is sort of this big tower, right, with all the IT infrastructure, all the command and control and that kind of stuff. Mm. Um, but at NASA, because of this decentralized nature that we have, the IT footprint is very different, right? Most people don't think of a satellite as being part of the IT environment. Most people don't have satellite ground stations all over the world that are part of the IT environment. And so, having to integrate these various groups together um, was probably one of the other major things that sort of emerged um, trying to get this central, this central, this decentralized construct to work in a cohesive manner. And so one of the other things um, that started to emerge as part of this was, um, as you can imagine, the role of IT security and cybersecurity in, in today's landscape. A lot of missions are very risk averse right? Especially if you're talking about, you know, a multi-million dollar, hundred million dollar plus satellite, um, security is of the utmost concern. And so because of that, we actually took what I consider to be a little bit of an atypical approach in terms of cloud in that we took it more as a platform, as a service type delivery model. We sort of took, taken that AWS shared responsibility stack and we said, okay, start, stop, pay for what you use, all that scalability but with guardrails in place so they're not accidentally, you know, putting keys into public Git repos or accidentally opening S3 buckets to the world. So we've put this sort of platform as a service with guardrails in place, which has really, I think, accelerated adoption of cloud at NASA. It sounds like, and I heard you talk about customers, you're talking about your internal customers, uh, it sounds like. Can you tell, tell me a little bit about uh, your customers at NASA? Sure. Yeah. So as I mentioned, we've got NASA's this big, you know, dispersed geographically and, you know, even technically dispersed group. And so for me, you know, at first, as I set out trying to understand these pain points, as part of some of those themes that emerged, the idea of finding other service providers sort of emerged. And so as an example, we have outside of the CIO organization, um, there's an entire software engineering uh, organization that exists, right? Um, as you can imagine, you know, spacecraft, Hubble, it, it's not running on Windows 95 up there or, or something like that, right? Because that's how long ago it launched. <laughs> um, and so, you know, they're writing operating systems for spacecraft, they're writing operating systems for ground systems components and that kind of stuff. Uh, you know, traditional software development, but, you know, not necessarily using Windows or Linux or something like that. And so, one of the things that I sort of did was I wanted to connect with 
who I felt would be almost, you know, SaaS providers, right? Software as a service providers that are providing some sort of functionality to other groups at NASA and getting them to leverage the cloud infrastructure as being a more lean and agile way of delivering their work. And so one of the projects in particular that I find um, particularly interesting um, is this project called DAPHNE. It's a long acronym that I won't spell out here. But the basic concept of um, what DAPHNE is going to do, NASA's in the process as part of DAPHNE of hooking up several of their ground stations worldwide uh, as part of the Near-Earth Network. It's the ground station project name. And so they're hooking uh, these ground stations all over the world to AWS, you know, points of presence locally and then beaming it back, beaming the data back to the United States. And they're going to do processing of science data coming off of the next generation of spacecrafts for for virtually pennies on the dollar doing a series of Lambda scripts. So I think from that perspective, uh, it's going to be really transformational. There's already, I think, four or five future satellite projects that have signed up to use the service. Right. It sounds like a lot of what you're doing and maybe everything that you're doing is uh, kind of mission critical. I've heard um, failure is not an option when uh, kind of talking about NASA projects. Um, so how do you how do you approach kind of that, that topic, uh, the topic of risk and risk versus perceived risk uh, when it comes to cloud and, and dealing with, you know, your, your partners and customers at, at NASA? Yeah, so that's, that's an interesting question. There's a couple of different ways that I'll cut that. Failure is not an option, definitely. I will sort of say, though, NASA's, NASA's general philosophy, at least when it comes to spacecraft, better to fail on the ground than to fail in space, <laughs> right? So it's much easier to fix when testing and something breaks on the ground than uh, once it's in low Earth orbit. And so... Uh, there is very much a, a test-as-you-fly mantra that, that goes on in the spacecraft assembly department. And so, somewhat similarly, uh, you know, in the ground system component, which is where obviously the cloud uh, lives as part of some of these mission systems, there's, there's definitely fear that cloud is something new. And there is some that are more uh, risk-adverse that um, because it's not known, because it's not full control, there is some hesitancy uh, but at the same time, I think through steady work, steady development, it's viable. Um, we were at, actually, ironically enough, one of the engineering reviews, and um, one of the engineers asked if we had stress tested the cloud. And I was like, well, you know, I don't know how much money you have, but like, I don't have infinite money to just go spin up a thousand instances to see how, how stressed I can uh, make the AWS infrastructure be. Um, so I thought that was interesting. And I think now, Right now that we're sort of two years in, it's a little bit more accepted. Um, you know, the, the next generation, as I call it, of spacecraft that are coming, uh, they're going to be using these Daphne, this Daphne service. They're all, you know, what, what are considered to be petabyte scale science missions. So uh, one of the missions, the first mission actually that's going to be using um, Daphne, which is sort of what precipitated the creation of Daphne in the first place, uh, is an Earth science mission called NISAR. And NISAR is going to produce... 41 terabytes of science data per day. So an astronomical amount of data that's going to be generated. And so I think it's become less about, you know, is it safe? Is it risky? And more about how do we put the right bounds in place? You know, very similarly for my team, uh, because it is part of this mission critical ground system, you know, I, I encourage them on a regular basis to not be scared of failure, right? Better to break things now than to break things in the future. Better, better to iron out all the kinks now while it's still on the ground. Right. And I think part of the way you do that is just to sort of be both steady 
as a leader, right? Like not freak out if something happens. Um, there were a couple of times where we had, you know, I consider them to be minor, but my team considered them to be major failures. And they came to me a little bit, you know, tail between the legs, didn't want to admit that something had gone wrong, expecting me to freak out. And instead of freaking out, I just sort of said, okay, like, how are we going to fix it? How are we going to move forward? How are we going to make sure that we have the right checks and balances in place next time? And I think over time, right, through some of those iterations, um, the team builds up confidence and says, hey, you know, it's okay. What we're doing is critical. Um, we're not going to be freak, freaking out over this. And I think everybody sort of gets, you know, moving under that same mindset. Yeah, I think there's a lot of confusion um, in general out there when it comes to kind of the topic of failure. And when we're talking about transformations and we're talking about new technology and and specifically with cloud, you know, the, the key really is you're never going to get rid of failure completely. You know, when we when we talk about um, being okay with failure and and embracing failure, we're not saying fail in production. We're not saying you know um, like your your mission should fail. What <laughs> we're saying is you should uh, front load those failures, as you said, on the ground in testing. And the cloud is an enabler of that. It's an enabler of front loading those failures so that you can get through it quickly. You can learn at low risk. You can learn when the stakes are low. Um, so that you could build up that expertise and kind of that um, that stress test, as you said. Um, so when it does go into production and when it does go into orbit, you can have that confidence to know that it's uh, far less likely to fail than if you did it some other way. Um, so, so I think, you know, it sounds like that's kind of the approach you're taking. Yep, exactly. And I think over time, like I said, our team definitely, they've started to embrace it and I see more and more of the missions embrace it. Mm -hmm. And I think once you've sort of gotten over that risk of failure, it's easier maybe to see all the other things that it enables, right? Like rapid collaboration with external partners for us is a big deal. Um, unlocking the potential of the data once it's in the cloud, right? Like once Daphne has processed it and it's on the ground and Lambda scripts run and it dumps images of the earth in a S3 bucket, mm -hmm. what kind of computer vision modeling can we do on it? What kind of other processing can we do on it? What kind of distributing can we do on it, right? There's actually an interesting use case um, that I think will be really cool is four or five years from now, uh, once it's sort of in production, to where they want to use this earth science data stream as it's coming in in real time to help um, and then running computer vision modeling on it to help predict wildfire outbreaks, right? Obviously, the wildfires in California right now are, are crazy and out of control. You know, being able to take satellite data in real time from space having it through this data supply chain, this data processing in the cloud, dumping it out into an S3 bucket mm. to where first responders with a mobile app can see, you know, up-to-date imagery of where the fires are, where it's moving, how it's moving, and, you know, and, and maybe to the point where we have some AI and machine learning analysis that's done that's going to help predict spread so they can be more proactive about trying to cut it off right. uh, before it gets too crazy and out of control. Definitely. And that's, you know, um, one of the kind of biggest benefits of, of embracing cloud is that you have not only kind of these capabilities that have been developed um, uh, and, and, and refined um, kind of at your, at your fingertips um, on a pay for consumption model, but you also, you know, you have that kind of um, near infinite capacity, compute capacity and storage capacity to run those kind of simulations and do that kind of work. And I would even say, you know, um, in answer to a request like you were saying before to stress test the cloud, um, I would say the cloud is kind of uniquely, um, you know, uh, positioned to kind of accept a challenge like that because you could say, you know, okay, so we want to test a thousand compute hours or 10,000 or 100,000 or a million compute hours 
uh, you could actually do that very quickly uh, in parallel because you have that kind of near near infinite uh, resources. So while you're going to pay for those hours, you don't have to pay for it in time. You can get the results back very quickly. So it's kind of like nonlinear way of thinking about problems um, kind of allows us to solve problems that were almost unsolvable before. Yeah, exactly. And so when I talk to some of the people um, that are maybe don't understand the value that the cloud brings, right? Because they're p- comparing it to on-prem, to data centers and on-prem resources. I tell them not to look at it. It's just compute hours or storage or hardware, but it's an ecosystem. Mm-hmm. Like there's an entire ecosystem of services. If you're just consuming the pure infrastructure as a service, you're missing a lot of the value of the cloud. Yes, you'll get out of, you know, you'll get out of the business of maintaining racks of hardware and stuff like that. But if you're just purely living at the infrastructure layer, you're still missing the, the biggest part of the value proposition. And it's that ecosystem. It's the higher level services, you know, building, you know, automated Lambda scripts to go looking for forest fires, right? D- using AI and machine learning to help predict the wildfire outbreaks. Um, it's those kind of things moving you up that value stack, the value chain of, of what you're trying to do. And, you know, out of doing basic, you know, even data processing, rudimentary data processing. Yeah, completely agree. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the kind of what we call anti-patterns, um, kind of a thing, a thing that a lot of customers, you know, will have in common uh, that are not as successful as they'd like to be um, is treating the cloud as another data center. You know, we're just renting a data center. And if you just kind of have the same expectations as you had in your data center and kind of assume you have the same capabilities as you had in the data center, but just look at it as being outsourced. Yeah, of course, you don't have to manage a data center anymore. And that's great. But you're missing out on the vast majority of the benefits, right? But, um, you know, at the same time for a lot of customers, and I don't think this is true of NASA from what you're saying, um, but some more traditional enterprises, it could be kind of like a first step. You're not going to make a huge change all at once. So getting to the cloud, treating it sort of kind of how you were your data center, and then slowly kind of increasing the, the, the services and the capabilities that you utilize could be um, kind of a good approach for them. Yeah, I definitely agree. You know, as part of my early adopter days at NGA, we definitely had, you know, a couple of lift and shift, as you will, approaches to get familiar with the basic infrastructure. Right. You know, our next thing was, okay, well, let's do a pilot project to take an old piece of software that people don't like, that's maybe low risk, not a huge user base, and let's try rewriting it using DevOps, DevSecOps principles. And what will that look like if we write it from scratch? And then uh, once we did that, it was like, okay, now we're, now we're confident, now we're comfortable Let's start trying to tackle complex problems, right? Let's start trying to tackle difficult problems and see what that gets us. And so, you know, what's interesting along the way, and this is true actually for for, uh, NASA as well, the government in general tends to try to be neutral. They don't want to pick favorites, right? I know a lot of vendors wish the government would stand up and declare, oh, we're all AWS or we're all whatever, you know, (laughs) you know, and so the government gets caught up sometimes in, I would say, overly complicating it from this regard. And so a lot of the approaches that I see specifically in the public sector is this push to be vendor agnostic, right? They don't want to feel like they're ever, they're ever locked in to any kind of thing. And I also think that misses a tremendous value that the cloud has. You're always locked into something. Um, uh, if I'm on-prem, I'm locked into whatever hardware vendor, you know, whatever Splunk, Red Hat, whatever I'm using there. I, I, you don't talk about being locked in on, on-prem. Mm-hmm. So why would you feel the same way? And so our basic approach is to always be as cloud-native as possible. Right. 
embrace the tools, embrace the services, move up the stack, just know what the switching cost is. Yeah. Understand the portability factor of what you're doing. Um, because everything, right, if I'm moving from on-prem to the cloud, this is where the term lift and shift comes from, right? <laughs> it's only somewhat portable. If, if I'm going to in turn then rewrite it to embrace a lot of Amazon native services, um, understand what the portability is from there, yep. right? It's, you know, just because I'm using Lambda, if it's, if it's a data processing script that I, writ- that I wrote in Go, I can go take Go and run it somewhere else. I can run it back on-prem. I can run it, you know, in another cloud provider if I wanted to. So don't, I think people sometimes trick themselves and get convinced that by embracing some of the managed services um, that somehow they're locked in permanently into using those, which I don't necessarily think is true in all cases. That's such a great point. And it's something I've seen time and time again uh, in helping customers. Um, again, another anti-pattern, right? And and your point about you're always locked into something is is so true, right? So like, the, and, and the biggest lock-in of all is being locked into a data center. Because if you think about it, you may you make decisions about what you, what hardware you buy and kind of what data center space to lease and and all of that what cables to use everything and you really are locked into those decisions you want to talk about lock in you know you're married to that even for no other reason than a financial sunk cost exactly so um we're, we're used to operating in this kind of lock in type environment uh moving to a cloud any cloud is going to free you from uh almost all of that um, and, and, and now you're in the situation where you kind of get to decide, um, how much of these capabilities are we going to take advantage of? Right. And, uh, and that's, that's a, that's a real choice to make, you know, like how agnostic do you want to be versus how many features do you want to take advantage of? And I think at the very least, you need to ask that question. You know, if you're just kind of saying we're going to architect to the lowest common denominator, well, how much is that going to cost us? Right. And, and what, are, what's the alternative and how much is that going to cost us? So at least, kind of look at that. And in my experience, the customers that um, are the most successful are the ones that, um, you know, it's directly correlated with how skilled their team is at managing the cloud. And, you know, it's going to be in the particular cloud platform that you choose. And so if you have, um, you know, people, you know, employees and cloud engineers that are really good at AWS, well, your infrastructure in AWS is going to be you know, more secure, it's going to cost less, it's going to be more reliable, et cetera. So embracing those things, you know, has a lot of benefits. Exactly. Yeah, I agree. So, um, you know, at NASA, it sounds like you guys are very forward thinking there. Um, Most organizations um, that I work with and most customers that I talk to, you know, they talk about the beginning of their cloud journey. There's this inertia to kind of get over and this kind of status quo that kind of um, uh, certain folks will, maybe even majority of folks kind of hold on to. Was that the case for you um, or, or, or was, was it kind of immediately accepted? So I think that there's, a, there's sort of a two-part answer to that question. As I mentioned, you know, my position was created um, as the full, first full-time cloud person about two years ago. I think you know, NASA started using the cloud, in particular AWS, probably five or six years ago. And it was on a sort of little p project basis, right? One particular team... They had a specific use case. There was no wide-scale adoption. There was no scale. And um, what I think we're seeing now, you know, eventually it got to the point where the CIO felt obviously the need to create my position, you know, to hire me, to bring me in. Um, And so what I think you're seeing, what I I think we're seeing now is a lot of pent-up demand. Mm. 
I think that there was a lot of interest in doing it. They just didn't want to be the first ones. As I mentioned, the government tends to be a little bit more risk adverse um, than other industries or you know other groups. And so I think this idea of pent up demand uh, is what we're seeing now um, with you know showing up, having this cloud service, having it operate in a way that's flexible, flexible and secure, extending that shared responsibility model. Uh, it's really, I think, accelerated that adoption factor. Um, I think I mentioned you know this Daphne project. They had started um, before us with doing some of this prototyping. But as soon as I showed up and told them about my experience and where I came from, ironically enough, we were at reInvent in 2018 together. Uh, I had just started in September. It was like my second month on the job. The Daphne developer team had already planned on going there to reInvent to just better familiarize themselves with AWS. And you know, I spent the better part of the week walking through with them. We attended some sessions. And you know, I just sort of talked to them about, you know, these are the kinds of things that you could do. This is the experience of where I came from. And I think it was it was those, you know, four or five days in Vegas that really committed them to wanting to work with us um, moving forward as a service provider. And and as I mentioned, it's really um, exploded since then. You know, it sounds like you're very decentralized there, but there is an IT team. And uh, these folks have had to kind of come up to speed uh, in cloud. What are some of the ways that you found are successful, have been successful in getting them both kind of motivated to work on this and to change and, and also kind of skilled? Are there any kind of lessons learned that you could think of? Yeah, so I'll do the skilled one first, um, and then I'll move into sort of the, the motivated part. As with a lot of organizations, right, when you're bringing on something new, there's, of course, always a skills gap. You know, we bought some training, some in-person training um, to get people up to speed. Um, there's a service called Quick Labs. Uh, we bought tokens so people could go and, and you know, get hands-on. Um, one of the other things we did, um, you know, and I, I'm not going to take credit for the concept, but um, we had... we came up with these accounts that are that we call sandboxes, mm-hmm. right? Um, where it's, hey, I'm going to have a script that's in this account that's hard-coded to self-destruct after 250 bucks. You can go and like, just go nuts, do whatever you want. And, you know, after 200, after your $250 is up, like the account is going to lock you out and it's going to like, you know, terminate. <laughs> you know, getting people into that environment to where they can play and fail and understand and knowing that there's a, a fiscal constraint around what you're trying to do, um, you know, because a lot of these projects don't have infinite budget or infinite money to just go test and play and train, I think is a concept that really resonated well with them. And so on the motivation side, I think just the sheer volume of mission projects that we've taken on is motivation in and of itself. It's opening up new avenues. You know, the traditional CAO organization, they do things like email and network and run the data center and issue you your laptops and that kind of stuff, right? Um, But when it comes to building the mission systems, they've typically, at least over the last 20 years, been excluded as part of that with a few minor exceptions like the ground stations and the network connectivity from the ground stations back to the data centers. And so the fact now that we have all these mission projects coming from other centers, coming with big budgets, it's really opened the CAO organization up to a whole new um, arena of customers that they didn't traditionally have access to in the past. And, um, And what's ironic now you know, I'm not out, especially in the COVID era, I'm not out going door to door at other centers. And yet, you know, other centers are accounting for probably half of our work at this point. 
Um, it's all word of mouth. And it's really, as you can imagine, gratifying as a team. Um, but, you know, as a manager, of course, but I'm going to give the team credit, right? Since they're doing the bulk of the work. Um, it's really gratifying as a team knowing that other missions are coming and asking to use the service because they heard good reviews from you from another project that's currently using you. And so I think that combined with the fact that, you know, it's NASA and a lo- what a lot of the missions are doing is pretty cool. I think that's that tends to be motivating. Sure. Um, do they have a choice as to they work on on-prem systems or cloud systems? I'm curious, kind of, is there a, a tactic to get them motivated to work on cloud specifically? And the reason I ask is because a lot of organizations, and perhaps NASA is not one of them, but these more traditional ones, they'll have, uh, you know, what we lightheartedly call server huggers. Uh, those who, uh, you know, they, they don't want to let go of their their hardware, right? And they, they look at it as uh, something that they, they'd be giving up. And not cloud is kind of these new capabilities that they're new superpowers that they're going to have. Did you have any anything like that, or were people kind of on board from the beginning? Uh, there definitely are some server huggers. Uh, we use the same term. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, there's some server huggers, but it surprised me that there was a very big embrace, very quick embrace at that. Right? If you asked me two years ago when I was you know, now in my second week on the job, who do you think your customers are? If you if you asked me to project forward two years to now, I probably would have said, you know, oh, scientists, science projects, it's public data, it's low risk. And so what's surprising me now is that the bulk of our customers are flight projects. And I actually think it's a pretty simple economic model. If you can have a 3% savings, right, or cost reduction, if you will, um, by renting hardware versus buying hardware, the the return on investment for a $10,000 science project is not great. But the 3% savings on a $50 million satellite is real tremendous gains that you can make. Mm. Or in a lot of this case, it's reinvestment that you're going to make in other components, right? Um, You know, in, in NASA terms, all these projects have a flight component and a ground component right? The sensors and all the other different components of the spacecraft. So if you can get that 3% savings on the ground system side of the components, it gives you all that additional capital to actually invest into additional instruments or other, you know, capabilities on the spacecraft itself. Right. Uh, makes sense. And so, you know, in terms of getting, getting them upskilled, uh, how important is it to uh, have your folks be hands-on um, early on? I'm curious kind of how, how do you balance kind of the classroom training, if, if there was that, with hands-on experience. And, and with the hands-on experience, how do you ensure that, um, you know, the people that are learning are doing it in a way that's safe and, you know, that you have your best people kind of vetting production systems? Yeah. So I would say NASA in general, as you can imagine, it's a lot of highly technical, very smart people. The vast majority of them wanted to jump right to hands-on. <laughs> there was um, no shortage of people that wanted the class training too. You know, NASA is a definitely a lifelong learner type organization as well. Shortly after I started, I think we bought like an in-person sysops class as just sort of the basic 101. And, you know, I bought 10 seats and, you know, advertised it online on center to like, hey, I got this class. It's 10 seats. It's three days. And I think we had like 55 to 60 people show up or sign up. <laughs> and so I was like, okay, there's clearly demand here. There's clearly demand Uh, for some of the traditional training methods, you know, back to that idea of sandbox, the concept of sandbox and getting hands-on in the infrastructure, understanding how it works. There definitely was or is, is, was, continues to be, you know, tremendous demand for those kind of, those training accounts, those training systems to where I can go in, 
where it's hard-coded to self-destruct. I can go play around. I can get some of those services, understand how some of those services work. You know, where you're actually hands-on in the console, you know, obviously is a, a big, big difference between, you know, getting PowerPoint lectured or even using something like Quick Labs where it's a scaled-down <laughs> version of the console. Right. I think that that console access, the first time you log in, to a, to a vast majority of users can be somewhat overwhelming, right? Because there's just so many services and so many <laughs> different categories. Where do I start, you know? Right. Yeah. No, it's been a while since I've been hands-on on the console. I can only imagine. I mean, it was overwhelming years ago. I mean, with today's number of services, it's I can't even imagine how it's organized. But, you know, what I found um, in my experience was the combination of that classroom training with the hands-on. It's like a force multiplier. I'm wondering if you kind of noticed the same thing. Yeah, I definitely agree that, you know, the hands-on, the sandbox environments where people could go play, plus some of the hands-on training is definitely the force multiplier because, you know, early on, as you can imagine, most of the approaches were sort of that lift and shift. You know, I don't want to be risk tolerant or, you know, I'm, I'm not that risk tolerant. So I want to just work within my comfort zone. You know, I manage VMs on-prem, so I'm going to use EC2s you know, in the cloud and just kind of, right. you know, <laughs> copy it over. And now obviously, you know, you're like, well, I don't want to manage EC2s anymore. Patching EC2s sucks. Like, you know, I want to, I don't want to do containers either. I just want to move straight to serverless. How do I move into Lambda? You know, how do I move into some of these other things um, as part of that? So I definitely think, like you said, force multiplier, you know, it's been a rapid accelerator. I think, you know, not just in the technical acumen, but sort of the out of the box or more cloud native thinking, um, you know, right. getting out of that data center, philosophy and moving more into the dreaming, what's the art of the possible kind of uh, area. Mm -hmm. So um, you've kind of been through this journey last couple of years. I'm curious kind of if you could go back to when you started and uh, give yourself some advice, what would it be? You know, what would you do differently, if anything? And what advice would you give perhaps a, a new leader coming into an organization in a similar uh, situation? What, would, what advice would you give? So I would say a couple of points. I would spend more time documenting things early. Uh, we definitely, when you're in that sort of lean startup mode, um, it was, let's hurry up and do, let's hurry up and do, let's hurry up and do. We need to try, fail, make sure that it works. And then, you know, once the dust settles three or six months from now, we're like, okay, great. Here we are. What did we do? You know, how do I convey these lessons back to somebody else that are now like all in our heads? You know, um, you know, how do I relay it back so it's repeatable to some other group or some other organization or some other government agency? I would say that's probably one. Um, we we were late to the game in hiring a tech writer to help document some of the stuff that we were working on. The other thing I would say is um, focus less on the tech. Well, when it comes to management, right, when, it, you know, the CIO and the senior management, I would say focus less on the tech in terms of the value proposition and more on that return on investment. Um, you know, the government doesn't tend to think of things as having an ROI or return on investment. It's, it's a more of a bottom line dollars and cents. And so I think, you know, speaking in those terms to them to get them to start thinking about it, right, that this is an investment, um, it's, it's something that you have to continue to put money into to reach a certain maturity level before it's really going to blossom. Um, you know, I use um, the, the, the term, I use the analogy of comparing it to a restaurant, right? Uh, building this new service and this new capability inside of the government where the government has a finite budget. It's not a profit and loss driven organization. You know, you have to cut funding in certain areas to increase funding in others. And so this idea of, you know, Getting rid of the past to invest in the future is something that the government sometimes struggles with 
in any you know digital transformation or IT modernization project. And so focusing more on the numbers aspect of it and how, how it will enable the future, right? Back to the idea of moving up the stack. Don't think of it as replacing the data center. Think of it as unlocking, you know, AI and machine learning tools, you know, Internet of Things, you know, chat bots with with Lex and Polly and all that kind of stuff. It's not a you're out of you're you're placing this rack of hardware for a rack of virtual hardware. It's you're unlocking the area to do other things. And and I think, you know, focusing more on the the enablement aspect of it and what it's gonna do around the investment, I think is something that the government, like I said, it still takes a while to sort of get some of the more senior leadership thinking in those terms. Yeah. No, that's great advice. Any any other uh, kind of parting words for our audience? Um, you know, we're primarily uh, uh, leaders within IT organizations. Many of them are beginning their journey uh, with cloud. Um, any other advice that you give to our listeners? Yeah, I think the other, maybe this is the third or the last one, get a full-time cloud security person as well. We got started early and it took us a year before we had a full-time cloud security person. It was sort of a part-time helper. And it it was fine at first, but it made it more difficult a year later to suddenly conform to government regulation and government policy and NASA policy to where we had gone off on this, we're going to be cloud-native journey. And then all the traditional IT security people in the CISA organization, you know, a year later when we come back trying to reintegrate with the enterprise are like, whoa, whoa, what are you doing? What is this cloud thing and how does it work? And so I think having that security person embedded from the very beginning, you know, goes hand in hand with the document person, right? Like mm-hmm. if you're going to do all the stuff and you're going to be try to be innovative and you're going to try to do you know, lean startup, sometimes what you think are overhead or administrative functions are actually become very critical to moving out of innovation and that pilot project in, into enterprise operations. Yep. And, you know, documentation, tech writing and security are definitely all part of that. Yeah, I can definitely agree with that. Um, and I think that's a subtle but really important point and a, and a great thing to end on. Sometimes it looks like overhead, but it really is the key to uh, enabling and unlocking that innovation. So kind of and sometimes it's overhead, right? But take a look at it and recognize the difference because uh, it can make a big, big impact, right? Yeah. Sometimes it's overhead. Sometimes it's foundation. Understand the difference between the two. Excellent. Well, Joe, this is a fantastic conversation. I'm so glad you came on. Thank you very much and uh, really appreciate it. Thanks a lot for having me. 